Toward the end of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus was speaking with his disciples and was talking to them about what it means to know him, what it means to know the king and to enter into the kingdom that he had brought. And he told two little stories about what it means to find what you've been looking for and to forgo what you've been seeking. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 reads like this, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus, long before the passage that we're going to look at today, Realize that when you find something or someone great, everything else pales in comparison. Let me ask you, have you found something or someone great? Has everything else in your life, does it pale in comparison to what you found? Today we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, and I'd invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures there. Philippians chapter 3, I hope you brought a Bible with you. If you didn't, we have a few hosts there in the aisles that would be glad to give you one. It's around page 952 in those Bibles, or you can find it in yours. Paul turns the page from the first two chapters to the last two chapters of this special letter to tell us what it means to find life's gold. And in that passage, Paul, in particular, looks at his own life, sees the transcendent joy that is a part of who he is, and wants not just the Philippians, but everyone to know how special his treasure has become. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, hopefully you found it there, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we often do here at Grace, and I'm going to read those verses together. I'm reading from the New International Version, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Thanks. You may be seated. Thank you for honoring God's word in that way. 
Today in this magnificent passage, we're going to see three things that followers of Jesus learn or do or discover through the prism of the life of Paul. And the first is this in the first three verses that followers of Jesus learn what gives them membership in the people of God. You can follow along in the back of your worship program or gracepolaris.org slash program these notes. Followers of Jesus learn what gives them membership in the people of God. Paul begins chapter 3 like he says a number of times in this letter, rejoice in the Lord. This is a theme of Paul's in Philippians. Paul knows, of course, that life is going to bring all kinds of trials, disappointments, and difficulties. He knows that following Jesus Christ is going to ask for suffering and sacrifice in your life. But he also knows that what gives us an anchor in life is joy in the Lord. A joy in the Lord that sees our future hope and lives in the present in light of that. Paul knew that this life is temporary. That the circumstances he endured and that you're enduring right now won't last. Paul knew that these heartaches aren't forever. What we will be is not yet fully revealed. But who we once were has already been changed. Can you say that? What you were is no longer. What you will be is to be seen. And in light of what God has done in Christ and will do in Christ, in his life and in yours, we can rejoice. In fact, Paul says we ought to rejoice. Joy is more than just some fleeting emotion. Joy is a conscious response to what we know has been done and will happen. Paul almost excuses his wording here. Sorry for the repetition, he seems to say, because I know this theme of joy isn't new to you. But it's no trouble for me to say this because you need to hear it. It's like the parent who tells his child something for the umpteenth time. Did you ever do that? It's not like the first time you've told him or her to do this or to not do that. But because it's important, it's no trouble for you to remind them again. And that's what Paul does here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Paul writes that these reminders, particularly this call to rejoice, is a safeguard. And and I'm inclined to think that he's referring back to what he's just said. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of the gospel. But it's possible, as we look forward in this passage, that Paul is saying that what he said is a safeguard might be referring to what he's about to say here in verses 2 and 3 and following. Because Paul knows amidst the discouragements of life, circumstances that you and I face, that if we're followers of Jesus, we're also going to face opponents in life. People who will have no toleration for our faith and for our Lord. And in rather unexpected fashion, Paul introduces a series of strong, urgent warnings to the Philippians to be on guard against those who would undermine their faith who would distort their focus, and who would steal their joy. Do you know that there are people and forces attempting right now to steal your joy? Are you letting them? If you're tempted, Paul's words are important. Verses 2 and 3 present us with two triads that, that outline the methods of these spiritual opponents and give us Help for an accurate response. And Paul doesn't mince words because the spiritual health, the spiritual sight of the Philippians are endangered. 
This has everything to do with Paul's deep desire that the Philippians would see themselves accurately as members in the family of God. Paul wants them to know, he urgently reminds them that the gospel, listen closely, and nothing more is their ticket to membership in the people of God. There are no hidden qualifications, no hidden conditions that you find out about later. No, Paul wants them to be anchored in the safe harbor of the gospel so that they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of cunning teaching and deceit. Paul warns them using three terms here. They each begin with the same letter in Greek. We don't read Greek in English. It doesn't have the same rhyme. But Paul says, be on guard, watch against those dogs, those evildoers, and those mutilators of the flesh. Quite a compliment Paul gives. These are about as harsh and derogatory as you can get in Paul's time and language. And Paul meant it like that. Paul was intentionally blunt. You read this and you might suspect something else, but Paul wasn't off his meds here. Paul wasn't somehow overwhelmed with fatigue or hungry, and so he blurted out what he never should have said. No, Paul was keen on the spiritual health of the Philippians, and he needed to tell them point blank what was against them. First, dogs. This is a derisive term. The Jews often referred to the Gentiles, most of us using this term. And we have to remember back in those days, dogs weren't the cuddly pet that we had around our house or taking on a walk around the neighborhood. Dogs were something else. They were filthy scavengers looking to find discarded leftovers from the table. Dogs weren't just second class, dogs were low class. But now Paul turns the table as a Jew, calls his fellow Judaizers dogs. Why was he calling them that? Because they were trying to convince the Gentile believers that in order to really belong to the people of God, they had to be circumcised too. They had to become Jewish in their customs and their practices in order to be first-class citizens. Otherwise, they were outcasts. But Paul knew that membership in God's people was not limited to a certain ethnicity or a certain religious background. And you and I, till this day, ought to be thankful for that. The gospel levels the playing field. He calls them evildoers. He's speaking of these Jews, some of whom might have professed to be believers, who were actually doing evil. They, they were adding their own good works to the good work that Christ had done on their behalf. And Paul is never against good works, but he's always against good works as a way to earn our salvation. And he was calling them out because they were deceiving the Philippian believers into thinking otherwise. Then Paul gets real graphic and calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's speaking specifically about circumcision. He's saying that these male Gentile believers need to submit to circumcision as adults. Otherwise, they wouldn't really be part of first-class citizens in God's family. And Paul says, not true. Not true a hundred times over. What's needed is a circumcision of the heart for every one of us so that we might be set apart for God. Paul's admonition to these 
believers in Philippi is strong, urgent. He says, watch out for them. The word means to pay attention. There's a strong dose of warning here. Caution, be careful about, warning. The Germans would say, Achtung. Something's coming and it's dangerous. Be careful. He's contrasting the good work of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus who laid down their lives for the church against those who are heaping new burdens onto it. Watch out, Paul says, for human adversaries, even those who come in the name of Christ. Here's why, because what they're claiming, what they're propagating isn't true. It's a distortion. It's a danger. Paul sets the record straight here about membership in the people of God. The people who truly belong to God are those whose hearts have been changed. Romans chapter 2 speaks of this circumcision of the heart in plain terms. Verse 28 of Romans 2, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Here are the people who belong to God's family, Paul says. They're those who serve God by his Spirit, who have been given the Spirit of God to live in them so that they might live for him. Those who boast in Christ Jesus, not who boast in their religious heritage, not who boast in their pile of good works, not who boast in their reputation, but boast only in Jesus Christ. Is that you? And they are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3. Followers of Jesus, listen carefully, have renounced their own merit. They come to the cross, they come to Jesus and say, I have nothing to contribute to my salvation. But you have it all. And it's this conviction that genuine members of God's family are those who put no confidence in the flesh, in their own human performance, which propels Paul into the rest of the passage and this lengthy, passionate description of his own life. Before we go there, let me ask a couple of questions. Do you base your good standing, your inside track with God based upon your personal religious accomplishments? Are there certain boxes that you check that you think, maybe God is impressed with me if I do that? Maybe I'm on God's good side. Maybe I'm on his team in his family. Dr. Matt Harmon, who was here a few weeks ago, put his finger on some of them. Some put their trust in their ethnic background, certainly back then, maybe now, or having been raised in a Christian home. Others put their confidence in their perceived obedience to God's command, thinking that they are good enough to be right with him. Still others, he writes, trust in their water baptism or in taking communion for their right standing before God. God, I did these things, therefore you must be impressed. We don't say those very often, but do we believe them? Do any of those represent you? When you think of how God views you, have you, do you embrace the notion that because of your parents, 
because of your church affiliation, because of your church attendance, because of your baptism, because of your record of service, because of your noteworthy giving, because of your leadership title, or because of your role, or anything else that God is impressed with you. Paul's words here are clear. There is no amount of religious pedigree, religious resume, religious success that gives you an inside track with God. Members in God's family are there for other reasons. Paul isn't done addressing this deception. Point two, followers of Jesus realize the emptiness of their own human resume. Status, pedigree, choose your word. Followers of Jesus realize the emptiness of their own human resume. The fact is, in life, we all search for significance. We all search for status before others. We certainly want to impress ourselves. We want to be legitimate in our own eyes. And we also want others to be impressed as well. But Paul goes a step further here. He says that he, and by extension, we seek in life ways to impress and legitimize ourselves before God. That if we check off certain boxes, certain categories, pedigree, performance, that we're going to be acceptable to God. And we do this so that we have confidence before him. We place confidence in the flesh, our own human performance to please God. And it's universal. It's not limited to ancient Jews like Paul. It's not limited to Jews. It's not limited to Jewish Christians. It's not, it's not limited to theists, Jews or Christians or Muslims. It is a universal tendency that even include atheists to try to make God happy if he exists in their mind. Human nature puts confidence in our flesh, in our accomplishments. You and I, by nature, are spiritual narcissists. We require, as the definition goes, constant, excessive admiration, and we expect to be recognized by God as superior. Look, God, look who I am. Look what I have. Look what they think. There were people like that in Paul's day. In fact, Paul was one of them. In this profoundly personal, convicting account, Paul makes the case for himself, and he has abundant reason to see himself as superior. But he also recounts his entire resume to show that in the end, it's hollow and empty and vain. Look at verses 5 and 6. They have a specific purpose. Dr. Harmon says, to show the futility of putting confidence in the flesh, Paul beats them at their own game by showing them on their terms, his spiritual resume far surpasses anyone else's. And his whole desire is not to win this game of competition, of status in the flesh, in our own performance, but it's to ridicule those who continue to believe that that impresses God. Look at his list. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. He checked the box of a good Jewish male. Of the people of Israel, he belonged to God's holy nation, his prized possession. Of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, regarded by many as the special tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrew. We're not exactly sure what Paul means by this, but perhaps that he spoke Aramaic, which was the privileged language among the Jews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, 
contrary to what we might think of, Pharisees were esteemed in that day as the most law-abiding, religious law-abiding of all. As for zeal persecuting the church, you want to know how committed I am to you, the one true God? These people talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, we go after them. These Jesus followers of the way, we kill them. Stephen, example A. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul was like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus told him, and he said, I've done all these, Jesus. And Paul said the same thing. God, aren't you impressed? Paul saw himself as a model Jew. He had checked all the boxes. He had met every qualification for greatness and excellence in Jewish society. Nobody can surpass him, and that's precisely the point Paul makes. It's not what each of these individually say about Paul. It's what the whole package says together. Paul had every reason to put confidence in the flesh before God. Well, you might be sitting here today and say, I'm not like Paul. I'm not into this misguided religious performing. I figured that out. It doesn't get you anywhere. I'm not trying to earn God's favor by being super religious. I seek something else. I seek pleasure. I seek status. I'm not all hung up on religion. Maybe you're like typical Americans who regard brains and beauty and brawn to be ultimate. Maybe you imbibe the, the air of our culture that says that those who know the most through education, degrees and titles, those who show the most through sex appeal, body image, look at me, fine specimen, those who grow the most, money and possessions and assets, make me something special. That's my resume in life. What's your resume? What does your life show you're seeking so that you can be impressed with yourself, maybe others too, perhaps God? Maybe Paul's way too religious for you. Maybe the better example is King Solomon back in the Old Testament. Everything Solomon pursued, everything he valued, he got. Remember Ecclesiastes? Money, check. Solomon got everything a mere mortal could ever want. Pleasure, check. Wine, women, and song. He had hundreds of wives and concubines. Work, check. He poured himself into his labor, and Solomon had vast accomplishments. Knowledge, wisdom, check. What was said of Solomon? Wisest man who ever lived. And what did Solomon write in Ecclesiastes after he found, pursued, and enjoyed all of those things? He said meaningless, vanity. It adds up to precisely nothing. Solomon would say, whatever resume you're chasing, it may impress others, it may appeal to you, but in the end, it is nothing. Do you believe that? Talk to Paul, talk to Solomon, it'll leave you empty. This morning, as you look at your life, what are you chasing? 
The fact is that all of us have a bucket list in life, not just the experiences we want to have, but the things we want to accomplish or do or be seen as so that others will say, he, she lived a significant life. But none of us will find those fulfilling. David Pallison says, we're all climbing a ladder to nowhere. That's true of Solomon. It's true of Paul. And the sooner we realize that our search for significance, chasing those things will be futile, the better. That comes, though, when we realize that significance is chasing us. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul concludes in verse 7, the hinge verse of this entire passage, where he says, but whatever were gains to me, and might I add, there were many, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Some of you are into finance, into accounting. Think of a balance sheet in accounting. On the one side, you have all of the assets lined up, the things you've earned, the things you've acquired, the things that you've been given. They demonstrate your worth, the value of your life, of your business. And on the other side, you have all of the liabilities, the things that you owe, the things that need to be subtracted from your assets. And Paul has just listed out in verses 5 and 6 a long list of assets for his life. His balance sheet is overflowing with assets. But along came Jesus Christ, and Paul's statement of spiritual health was devastated. You've seen that little device that blows up balloons where every time you pump it, the balloon gets a little bigger. You know what I'm talking about? Preparing for a birthday party. A little more air, balloon gets bigger. A little more air, balloon gets bigger. And in verses five and six, that's precisely what Paul's doing here. Look at my life. And Jesus comes along like a pin and he pricks the balloon and the thing explodes. Nothing. That's what Paul discovered here. The pride of his life, nothing. Warren Wearsby says he examines his own life. He becomes an auditor who opens the books to see what wealth he has, and he discovers that he is bankrupt. All the things that went into the gains, the asset column, power, prestige, obedience, and they're all transferred on a moment's notice into the loss column. Because Paul experienced the 180. And the only explanation for the 180 that Paul experienced was that he encountered the risen Christ. It's detailed in Acts chapter 9. I commend that passage to you today to read. The summary is this. In the midst of his jealous pursuit or zealous pursuit of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, Paul was stopped in his tracks by Jesus Christ. You remember the story, Paul is confronted by Jesus who asks him, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? And Paul had no answer. Paul was blinded there on the road to Damascus. He was led into the city. He met a man named Ananias. In due time, his sight was restored and his conclusion about Jesus was transformed. He thought that Stephen was wasting his life. In fact, Stephen was anti-Jewish and Paul was there celebrating his death. But then when Paul saw the light, 
When Jesus appeared to him, he realized that Jesus was everything he claimed. There was a complete reversal because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus was actually the Lord and Son of God. As a result, because of Christ, Paul added up all of his assets and he considered them to be one huge liability. If we think of a scale or a teeter-totter, if you want, when you put the balance together, when you put Christ on one side and everything else that you claim for significance on the other, everything else has no significance, no weight, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what Paul said. Jesus changed everything for Paul. His destiny, his calling, his morality, his own self-evaluation. Life would never be the same because Paul met Jesus. And he describes that in magnificent language, beginning in verse 8. In those verses that follow, we see, third point, followers of Jesus revel in the fulfillment of knowing Christ intimately. Verse 7 is the hinge verse. It's the capstone. But for Paul, it's also the launch pad. Because as a result of this encounter with Christ, his whole life and future had been transformed. And in these verses, beginning in verse 8, Paul paints a picture of how his life had been changed. And the biggest change was what happened in his spiritual accounting. In verse 7, look closely there. He actually uses the perfect tense. The NIV is a little vague there. Some of your translations get it. A perfect tense is a past event that has continuing results into the present. There was a reckoning that took place for Paul. And that reckoning had never stopped. The accounting had changed. Now, verse 8, he speaks in the present tense. He considers, not considered, that happened, but he still considers. He, he in ongoing way, is considering everything a loss. This is his settled judgment. Why do I point that out? Because it's important to note that Paul's conversion wasn't based upon some fragile emotional moment. You've heard the testimonies of people. I was at this event. I was at this concert. I was in this church. And, and I just, I kind of felt weak, like I needed that. And so I raised my hand. I walked the aisle. I did something. And then I came to my senses the next day and thought, what was I doing? That was not Paul. Paul's conversion wasn't based upon a fragile emotional moment. It was a conversion of the heart and the mind and the destiny. It was a strong spiritual conviction. Twice here in verse 8, everything, all things, Paul describes the comprehensive nature of his judgment. It's not just all the bad things Paul had done, and there weren't very many from a Jewish point of view. It was all the good things he had done, and there were a ton of them from a Jewish point of view. What Paul renounced was not the wickedness of the flesh, but all the goodness of the flesh. Even the things in life that are beneficial, that are helpful, are ultimately a loss on the spiritual balance sheet compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? 
It's not just the sins that we commit, but the things that so easily entangle us that stand in the way of seeing Jesus for who he is. Paul used to think he was wealthy. Now he realizes he's a pauper. He's not done. All of these previously valuable assets weren't only a loss, verse 8. They were repulsive to Paul. He calls them garbage, rubbish, dung. That last word is probably the most accurate. The word in the original means excrement, manure, garbage. You can fill in whatever appropriate English word you want. This isn't the first time that our righteousness has been so evaluated. Isaiah 64, 6, we read, all of us have become like one who is unclean. Here it is. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Congratulations. All the good things you've done in terms of impressing God don't hold water. God's not impressed by our good deeds because nothing compares to Christ. Jesus makes everything else look like garbage. It's not just that what Paul had was of negligible value. It's that they had become liabilities which stood in the way of knowing Christ. How does that happen? Paul completes his case here. He says the way that someone is found in Christ is not by religious performance that earns righteousness before God. We don't accumulate all kinds of chips with God, assets with God, and say, see God, aren't you impressed? Look at everything I've done. Aren't I good? It's not how we're seen as righteous in God's eyes. It's not by observance of the Jewish law according to the Old Testament. It's not by performance of good works. However, they are seen in our own culture. See, religion is based on performance of whatever is considered proper. And our world tells us that gives us righteousness, but not biblical Christianity. It's only through right relationship, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we find righteousness. And Paul, like many of us, had to give up his religion in order to receive righteousness. Let's be crystal clear here. Righteousness is essential to being acceptable to God because he's a holy God. None of us have righteousness. None of us can earn righteousness. None of us can manufacture righteousness. What we must have in life before God, we cannot get because of our sin. And so we're lost. But Jesus Christ has righteousness. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death as a substitute for you and for me. He rose again with power because he's the perfect son of God. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin. Jesus, friends, is what we desperately need. Every single one of us. There's no verse that encapsulates that, summarizes that so well as 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen closely. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Do you hear it? The exchange. Jesus, sinless, full of righteousness. Jesus taking our sin, our unrighteousness onto himself at the cross. And in the exchange, offering us, giving us his righteousness so that we can stand before a holy God. A righteousness none of us can earn. No moral works can do. A righteousness that's imputed, placed there for us by Christ. And on the basis of faith in what Jesus has done and does offer, you and I and every person on the planet can go from lost to found, can go from condemned to embraced. That was Paul's story. Is that yours? I want to tell you in as plain a language as I can this morning that you ought to receive that righteousness. Without it, you stand, you remain guilty before a holy God. And there's no amount of good living, no amount of right morals that can change that. Just ask Paul. Paul had the best grades here. He was off the charts 4.0. But Paul discovered he was living according to the wrong grading scale. And he failed miserably. Paul says to us today, he says to everyone who will listen, we must repent of our garbage attempts at righteousness and instead place our faith in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And when we do, we get forgiveness, we get a new heart, we get eternal life, we get the gift of the Spirit, we get power for living. Why would you turn that down? Paul embraced it and it changed his life. And it gave him unending gratitude to God. Look at verse 10, pulsating off the page what had happened to Paul. Paul found in him my burning desire, he says, is to know Christ ever more intimately, ever more deeply. That is the essence of my life. A personal knowledge of Jesus, not just a cognitive one that says, yes, I know the facts, but I know the person and I can't get enough of him. Jeremiah 9.23 says, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me. The point all along from God is that you and I would know him. He doesn't want performance. He wants a relationship. And through that relationship, He'll bring performance that you'll never imagine. Paul speaks of what that relationship with Jesus Christ now looks like. The power of the resurrection. I hear that and I say, yes, Lord, and more. Give me power in my life. I want the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ living in me. Anyone else? And Paul goes on with another great one. He says in Fellowship in his sufferings. Any, any takers there? Oh, wait. You mean if you get Jesus, you get his power and you get his sufferings? Yeah, that's what Paul's saying. I like victory. I don't like suffering. But with Jesus Christ, they go together. 
And the power of Jesus and the hope we have in him helps us endure the suffering with Jesus in this life. Some of you know that. Some of you have lived that and you've lived it well. Wow. Paul's not a masochist here. He's not looking to suffer, but he knows for the sake of Christ, he has lost all things, including his claim to comfort and convenience and pleasure all the days of his life. This life is not my own, Paul says, and so God can give me power and suffering. Can you say that? Paul says, finally, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul realizes that to live for Jesus, he's going to have to die to himself. And all the ways that he's mapped out his life and his performance and his pleasure. He's actually echoing the words of Jesus who said in Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Or as Jim Elliott said, well-known quote that you've heard many times, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Our whole salvation story is told here through the personal example of Paul. We see what justification is, how he can be made right with God, and so can you. He describes what sanctification is, this process in the present of being made holy, of being made to look more and more like Jesus Christ. And he speaks of glorification that someday I will rise too, says Paul. This life is not all there is. Someday in glory I will be with the risen Christ. Amen? And Paul says that's his hope. This passage is like a towering mountain in the New Testament. This is vintage passionate Paul. Metaphors all over the place here. Paul describes accounting, assets and liabilities, and where Jesus fits. He says that Jesus is the ultimate asset, and compared to everything else, it makes it look like garbage. In fact, anything else is an obstacle if it gets in the way of Jesus. Maybe the metaphor of investing is more potent for us. You and I, if we have any Pennies to invest are told to diversify our investments. We're told to hedge our bets, aren't we? We're told not to get overexposed in one direction or the other. You know what Paul says about that spiritually? Garbage. That may be good financial advice, but it's terrible spiritual advice. Paul says don't diversify your investments. Put everything in the stock of Jesus Christ. Are you? Maybe we use Vegas terms. Paul doesn't restrict his risks. He doesn't hold back with his life. He takes all of his chips and he puts all of them in the middle, betting on Jesus Christ in his life. Are you? I know whom I have believed, Paul says, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Jesus doesn't call us to go half in for him. We don't add Jesus to our lives. We replace everything else, like Paul, with the risen Lord Jesus. 
Jesus is not meant to be our insurance policy. Jesus is our entire investment. And when we see Jesus as supreme, everything else fades in comparison. Because knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus, friends, is the supreme treasure. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for the life of Paul, and I thank you for the challenge and invitation that he gives to us to see Jesus for who he is and to respond accordingly. All of us, God, are lost. We're sinners, and we can't gain righteousness before you. We are helpless and hopeless. But you, Jesus, offer us the greatest deal ever, your righteousness for our unrighteousness. We see what it did for Paul's life and eternity. And we have to ask, what does that do for mine? I pray, Lord Jesus, in the quietness of this moment, that those who are here and can't answer with a resounding yes to the question, do I know this Christ? Have I been found in him? Is his righteousness now mine? That they would turn and trust you. If that's you today, I invite you to pray. In the quietness of your own heart, something like this. Jesus, I'm lost. Jesus, I can't my, find my way out. Jesus, what I have to offer God is not impressive to him. As a sinner, I need you. And I accept you. I embrace you. I trust in you to do for me, to do in me what I can't do for myself. I want you to be the Savior and Lord of my life. And if that's you right now, in the genuineness of your heart, if you prayed that, then your destiny is changed, and so is your life. God, would you do a work in those who need to turn to you, and in those of us who have, that we would fairly and appropriately evaluate Jesus and see him as the passion, the ultimate asset of our lives. Thank you for the testimony of so many who have. And thank you for the testimony of those who will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.